Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right, I want to welcome everybody to my house. Thanks for coming. For Scott, I'm Gabe Polsky, and uh, I'm honored to have all you guys here and to have, you know, this great event here for Scott and Hollywood Reporter. This is a, you know, monumental event and achievement, 500 episodes. It's not, but the key is, it's not, it's not the number. It's not the number that's important. It's really about the quality and to achieve 500 episodes of that kind of quality of interview. I'm, I'm a documentarian, you know, I make narratives too, but I have a lot of respect for the interview and the fact that he has, you know, achieved that kind of quality and depth. You know, th- these are timeless interviews and each one of them could be, you know, a documentary in itself. If I, I just, you know, I'm honored to you know, he's kind of like a brother. I met him in 2014, and we kind of, you know, developed a, you know, a friendship since then. And and the fact that, you know, I just feel honored that that you guys are all here and that we could celebrate this here and and do a really fun episode tonight and uh, and a great dinner and welcome here and let's let's have fun. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming out tonight to help celebrate the 500th episode of Awards Chatter, a podcast that I've been doing for The Hollywood Reporter since 2015. Since our first episode, it's been 2,838 days, 405 weeks, 93 months, and nearly eight years. We've been averaging one episode every 5.6 days. Uh, to listen to all of our episodes, it would take you more than 500 hours or 21 straight days and nights. They should try that on people instead of waterboarding. Um, but you know those uh, side-by-side photos that you sometimes see of Obama or George W. Bush before and after they were president? I'm just very glad there's not a before photo up here because it has definitely it looks different than eight years ago. But uh, in all seriousness, this podcast has been the most demanding part of my work at The Hollywood Reporter, but also the most rewarding. Like many of us, a lot of the work that I produce, I think, is ephemeral. Uh, My SAG Awards nominations analysis might be looked at for a day or two, and then it's gone. But it is very gratifying that it's very gratifying to hear from people who listen to episodes that were done eight years ago and come up and talk about it. So it's a nice feeling, and it, it makes you want to keep doing it. Even before the podcast, just by nature, by virtue of uh, 
covering the award season, I've had the opportunity to interview some pretty remarkable people, um, but there, it never fully translated onto the page. I don't think that maybe that's because I'm not a good enough writer. Maybe it's just because you can't capture a conversation just through and through. But I was very exciting for that reason when my former colleague at The Hollywood Reporter, Jesse Katz, began championing the idea of doing podcasts there. And when our then editorial director, Janice Men, who's here, and our then deputy editorial director, Matt Bellany, and our then publisher, Lynn Siegel, championed this idea of, of doing them and encouraged me to pursue them. Um, Matt, in fact, was the one who suggested the name Award Shatter. And it was most exciting of all, of course, when uh, some of the most accomplished people in our industry began accepting invitations to do it after asking, in some cases, what is a podcast? Um, <laughs> so 500 episodes later and episodes including people like Steven Spielberg and Oprah Winfrey, Lauren Michaels and Meryl Streep, and then also people from outside of showbiz. We've had Malala, Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, Gloria Steinem, Bill Gates. We could go on and on. It is, it is pretty surreal to arrive at this figure. I want to just really thank everyone who has supported the podcast over those eight years. Yes, it's work, but it's also pretty, it's, it's great material to have for going out or, or talking to people when you can say you sat down with yeah. a 99-year-old, Ben Ferenz, who was the last living prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials. He was the subject of a documentary. And then a seven-year-old, Brooklyn Prince, who was the star of the Florida Project. That's, that's a, you know, a range of people, I would say. Um, I have been, in the course of doing this podcast, smoked into oblivion during a recording by Snoop Dogg, <laughs> called a dipshit by David Crosby, and then defended by Howard Stern. I had a conversation during which Jimmy Fallon got emotional reflecting on the Trump hair ruffling, and then Donald Trump tweeted, Jimmy, be a man. I mean, it was just, you know, it's jumped the shark when, when Trump, that's, that was back when Trump was tweeting. Weekend update, I think this was after John's time, did a reference to our uh, Bono and the Edge episode in which they said they disliked the, disliked the name and music of their band, which was ripe material for others who felt the same. Anyway, it's, it goes on and on. But none of this would have been possible without the support of, again, the folks at THR, where I've been proud to work since 2011, and in particular, two people who have worked as producers of the podcast. Initially, Dora Takash, who was here from Hungary on a short-term basis and did this for the first two years, and Matt Whitehurst, who's been on the job ever since. I'm so grateful to them for their skills, patience, and friendship. I'd also like to thank all of our guests who have done the podcast, the publicists who've made their visits possible, of course, our listeners, whose enthusiasm for the podcast uh, has fueled my own. And lastly, on this night, especially Gabe Polsky and also Justine Chirachi. These are two great friends who said, I should not let this milestone pass without doing something to commemorate it. And so here we are. Thank you for letting us do it at your house. <laughs> Which brings us at long last to the business of the night. Our guest tonight, who really honors me by doing this for our, for our milestone episode, is someone who I've admired for a very long time. He is a 40-year-old comedian, writer, producer, and actor who already has to his name a Peabody Award and 18 Emmy nominations, two of which have already resulted in wins. He began working 
as a writer at SNL at just 25, co-creating with Bill Hader, one of the show's most beloved characters, Stefan. And he has often since returned to the show to host it, becoming a member of its Five Timers Club last year. That's a pretty elite company. And whose annual appearances on the show, to quote the New York Times, quote, have become one of the show's more enjoyable traditions in this current era of its history, close quote. But he is probably best known for his stand-up, including five televised specials, the most recent being John Mulaney, Baby J, which dropped on Netflix back in April, and they have collectively made him one of the most popular and respected comedians of his generation. Don't take my word for it. Seth Meyers has said, quote, for my money, he's the funniest person in America. He's this combination of great writing and great performing you so rarely see. Close quote. Jerry Seinfeld has noted with his, this is about as enthusiastic as Jerry gets about anything, quote, he really knows his way around the comedy arts, close quote. I think that's a nice under, understatement, but thank you, Jerry. And as David Letterman put it, quote, John Mulaney, this is the future of comedy, ladies and gentlemen, close quote. So without further ado, please join me in thanking and welcoming John Mulaney. <laughs> Thank you very much. Scott, that was so nice. Sorry for such a long wind-up there. But no, it was wonderful. I loved every part of it. Thank you. <laughs> well, very grateful you're here, and I'm going to begin the way we begin every episode, just in case there's anyone who doesn't know. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, in uh, the Lincoln Park area on the north side of the city. Um, my dad was a uh, corporate mergers and acquisitions attorney, and my mom was a lawyer and law professor, uh, also worked for a while at the Department of Children and Family Services um, a, in writing uh, the new code of child ethics for Illinois. Um, and that's what they did. Now, the way you have described your childhood and other things is very funny to me. You say essentially... It was growing up in the 90s, but in the style of the 50s, you, I guess there was a certain formality to it, which might explain some other ways that you present as a <laughs> comedian. Um, but can you just share, I mean, how early were you out there telling jokes and actually studying comedy in a sense as part of a group? Um, how early was I telling jokes? Pretty immediately. I, uh, I was the third of five kids. And I was, I, I seemed wild from the beginning, like kind of feral and uh, would always take all my clothes off and run around the house. My older siblings told me and um, very interested in making adults laugh from the very beginning in, in, even in ways where I would pick up a cadence or a set of phrases that I thought sounded like adult humor, but made no sense, you know? I, um, I remember my parents were having a dinner party and I came downstairs, I was like six, and I said, uh, how's everyone doing? You're, you're gonna be a lot worse if Dukakis wins. And then uh, laugh, and like that sounded to me like a joke, right. you know? Dukakis, right. you know, how you doing? It all seemed like a rhythm. Right. And so I would say things like that, non sequiturs. Um, my first joke, I think, was when I was four, I was at a birthday party, and someone said, that's a sharp shirt you have on. And I said, yeah, sometimes I use it instead of scissors. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty good. Not bad, not bad. Sharp, scissors. Right, right. It's not bad. Not bad. 
What were the Rugrats? The Rugrats was a sketch comedy group that I was in when I was, I joined when I was seven. It was run out of a black box theater in Chicago. This woman named P.K. Doyle uh, was the, uh, sort of the La Mama of it. Uh, She oversaw, um, I think we did about two weeks, we were all kids. Everyone was seven, eight, or nine. I wasn't just, it wasn't an adult troupe and I was a seven-year-old. We would do two weeks of improvising, uh, improv games, coming up with little scenelets, and then we would put on a show. We'd do two shows, two different nights, uh, for what felt like a packed house, but was probably just our parents. (laughs) And it was like a review. It was a sketch comedy show that we developed through improv games and so forth. And we got paid uh, each with a $2 bill because P.K. Doyle said every actor should get paid. <laughs> and I was thrilled. It was the greatest. It was the most, it, I can't overstate how fun this was as a kid. Now, this could be urban legend, but I, I believe it would be around the same time that we're talking about. Were you almost Kevin McAllister in Home Alone? Oh, very far from almost. Far, almost. Okay. I was approached after the uh, Rugrats review, I think the first year I did it. And it was a casting director who told my parents that they wanted me to audition for a new John Hughes movie. And the synopsis of the movie I got then was that a kid wishes his family would disappear and then he wakes up in a foreign land where his family is gone. So maybe the casting director just butchered it or my mom butchered it, I don't know. But that was the premise, they said. And then my mom told me at the pediatrician's office, uh, right before I got a booster shot, that she had talked it over with my dad and she didn't want me auditioning. Was that crushing? That was crushing and then a needle was jabbed in my right. arm. <laughs> uh, what was crushing was when the movie came out. Yes. And, my, and I saw it, loved it, having no memory of what had happened the year previous. Right. And my mom said, oh, that was the movie that they <laughs> wanted you to audition for. But uh, he, he, everything happened that should have happened. Right. Macaulay Culkin was excellent. Right. So there was always a bit of a, a go-getter aspect of you. I know there are other aspects which we'll come to as well, but what about how does the Museum of Broadcast Communications come into play? Just because I think this is kind of illustrative of your seriousness about comedy. Um, The Museum of Broadcast Communications is a TV and radio museum in Chicago. It's run out of the Chicago Cultural Center. It's a pretty small museum. Um, They have some of the original Bozo the Clown stuff. They have uh, Kukula, Fran, and Ollie, the original puppets. They have uh, some of the Nixon-Kennedy debate uh, uh, lecterns, I think. Um, they have an exhibit on that. And what, then they had this archive room where they had you know, an extensive amount of uh, television on video from uh, the 50s to now. So I started going down there when I was about 10 and I wanted to see uh, full episodes of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson because my parents had gotten me a video that was the best of Johnny Carson. And it was the tomahawk throw and it was all the animals that ran up on his head and it was fun and every bit kills and every comedian is great. And I thought, this is awesome. Um, You know how 10-year-olds want to dissect these things. I thought, this is awesome, but what was an average night like? Like, how did he fill the hour? So I wanted to see just a full episode and see what Carson was like, what it was really like to watch Johnny Carson in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of the shows are bad. But you were going down there at yeah. 10? Yeah, 10. By yourself? Um, occasionally a friend would come with me, but uh, I'd, I'd go myself. 
And you, so you were studying it. And I think, and I wanted to see what Ed Sullivan was like. Yeah. So there was like in the, in the 90s, there was a real, uh, we, we had a real understanding of the big events of the 60s and 70s. There was lots of nostalgia. There was lots of sort of, you know, recent history um, available on TV. Uh, and at the same time, I thought, what was, what was, I, I get it, the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, but what was an average episode of Ed Sullivan like? Right. I don't know why that was such a thing for me. I just wanted to know what it would actually be like to absorb all of it. But that kind of above normal curiosity also, also extended to the kind of comedy albums and things that you were consuming at home, right? You're not just listening to, at that point, early Dave Chappelle or Chris Rock or whatever. There's old time comedy as well, right? So yeah. there was always that kind of uh, curiosity and openness to, to older things, which a lot of younger people don't even have. Well, I had a real interest in older things, in an older style of dressing and talking. I started carrying a briefcase to school when I was eight. <laughs> um, my dad switched from a hard briefcase to one of those sort of 90s me bags, you know, with a shoulder strap. And I said, what are you going to do with that one? And he said, well, I'm just going to get rid of it. And I said, can I have it? And he said, yeah. So uh, in third grade, I started carrying a briefcase. Uh, I really liked to wear a suit and tie. I, uh, I, I wanted to be a comedy writer uh, in the 1950s. Yes. Like I, I really coveted the life of a Your Show of Show writer. Yeah, you're Mel Brooks. Uh, I, 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 I would read about that or there'd be a thing on PBS where all the writers would talk about what it was like and how they'd eat sandwiches and smoke cigarettes and write jokes. And I couldn't think of anything cooler. <laughs> uh, I really, really wanted that to an odd degree, you know. I mean, carrying a briefcase, I was sort of uh, cosplaying yeah. 1950s comedy writer, <laughs> right. but I was in middle school. So as you're, I guess, in middle school also, you, I don't know, some kind of one-act performance, there were things that were starting where you're actually now beginning to do comedy, I believe, but it's really when you get to Georgetown, your parents' alma mater, you go off there, presumably to study, you know, I think, what was, the, what was your major? Again? English and theology. English and theology. But yeah. before you probably even declared your major, uh -huh. you found your crowd, right? Almost immediately. Yeah. I went, I remember the first day of college, my roommate Daniel asked me, what do you want to be? And I said, I would like to write for the New Yorker and then be a TV comedy writer. And um, I don't know why, I think I was saying the New Yorker because we were suddenly in college and I wanted to sound, <laughs> I don't know why, just throwing it in. But, right, right. And I, I started to lump the life of a New Yorker writer in with, you know, that... <laughs> that uh, eating sandwiches and smoking cigarettes life that I was after. And then a um, couple days later, a kid I had met down the hall said, do you want to audition for this improv group? And I remember saying to him, I think I'm done with performing. I just want to be a writer now. <laughs> <laughs> and I went along with him to go along with him. I ended up getting cast in the improv group by uh, the senior who was the director named Nick Kroll. Yeah. Uh, I thought uh, he was South American when I met him. <laughs> um, he has a bit of a, that look, and also uh, he kept talking about how he'd been in Argentina and what they do in Argentina. I didn't realize he had just done one semester abroad. Right. <laughs> but he was talking a lot about the Argentinian way of doing comedy. Right. So, <laughs> so he cast me, and we became pretty immediate friends, and that was worth the price of the four years of tuition. Um, I, I loved uh, Georgetown. It was a great 
university and a university like that is such an interesting resource because you walk around and you see like George Tenet <laughs> and Madeleine Albright and uh, it, it has this school of foreign service and it's an interesting, stimulating place to be around. The biggest thing I got out of that out of Georgetown were the people like Nick Kroll and Mike Birbiglia. I was going to say, Birbiglia was also in... He had just graduated, but he came back to do something at the DC Improv. Did you, just out of curiosity, because you and Nick Kroll, if anyone doesn't know, among other things, are very well known for later doing Oh, Hello, this this act that became a off-Broadway and then Broadway hit. Yeah. um, (laughs) On which you guys play octogenarian... Upper West Side Jews. <laughs> Does octogenarian mean over 80? Yes. Oh, no, they were in their 70s. Excuse me. Septa, yeah. Septa, now septa, they would be octogenarian. Now they were, right. Yeah. That's what I meant. But no, they would no. have cut you down hard if you had <laughs> yes, said that. Yes. Yeah. But was, was that going on even back at Georgetown, or when did that start? Our, our sensibility uh, that, oh, hello, they're very, like, um, NPR tote baggy, uh, turtleneck and, and, uh, and blazer kind of guys. And that, that weird, soft world of the way people dress in Hannah and her sisters and sort of, <laughs> this sort of brown 1970s New York vibe was always a thing that we uh, pulled from when we would do bits together. Yeah. Oh, Hello, uh, as an act, kind of came out right after I graduated from college. So you graduate oh four. By oh five, you're opening for Berbiglia on the road? Yes, I went on a uh, Comedy Central's college tour that they did every year. Berbiglia was the comedian that year. And we did, uh, we were on a tour bus and we did about 30 shows in 30 days, which was, which I went from someone who wanted to be a comedian and wanted to have already <laughs> been, a, I, I wanted to already be established as a comic, but I couldn't because I was really green and I wasn't that good yet. Uh, and I sort of, I was in a place when I first got out of college where if the show was canceled, I was equally happy. <laughs> I just wanted to be pursuing stand-up, but it was still scary, and I'd maybe do one show a week. And uh, I, I wanted this so badly, but I, I just needed to kind of clarify my thinking. And this, this tour was like a boot camp. Because your base at that point was still Chicago. No, I was in New York. I moved, moved to New York uh, a couple weeks after graduating from college. And that was partly because Kroll is already there. Girl's already there. Berbiglia has an apartment um, right near the comedy cellar. He has a bed. I remember sitting on his floor, and uh, he was sitting on the bed, and he said, I'm thinking of getting a chair. And I said, that'd be a great idea. Um, But it was so... I'd seen a um, roadmap from them as to how you could get started. And and I just mean open mics. And maybe doing something, uh, maybe interning at the UCB theater, which I started doing, which was basically mopping up and stuff, uh, and taking a class there. So they were still at an early level, but it, to me, they were just miles and miles ahead. Comedy Central eventually released your first two stand-up specials, but your association with Comedy Central began in a much more humble way. What was your first job at Comedy Central? I was an ass- intern, in the summer of 2003, uh, in the development department. And I'm trying to think, that was at a time, uh, the Daily Show was the absolute touchstone of American culture. There was no Colbert Report yet. 
There was Reno 911. There was Chappelle. The whole place felt really, really exciting. And they were at, uh, um, what was the address? 1575 Broadway, the Newsweek building? 1775 Broadway, the Newsweek building. And I went up, the, my first day I got on the elevator and David Brown, the film producer, was uh, there and he had an office in that building. He was walking on a 90 degree angle. He was so <laughs> hunched over. But I was like, that's David Brown. <laughs> and I rode the elevator up with him and then I got off uh, on, I think it was the 16th floor. And Comedy Central was, you know, it was a big hot place, but it was just this one floor, everyone on top of each other. It was really fun. You did something that I don't, I don't imagine too many other assistants there, interns, did, which within a pretty short amount of time, you sell them an idea? Yes. Right? So, well, <laughs> was... not Comedy Central proper. Okay. So in 2006, this idea of broadband was very, <laughs> very popular, which was having a player uh, that you would download and it would barely work <laughs> and you'd watch, you know, shorts and everyone it, it, looking, I don't mean to make fun of them looking back. They were, they were trying for what eventually became, you know, YouTube, but uh, this, th they had these broadband channels. So MTV had Overdrive and then Comedy Central had Motherload. And what was great about Overdrive and Motherload is if you had a Mac, they didn't work. So <laughs> you had to have a PC. And we were doing Nick Kroll and I um, and a few other guys who had been in the improv group at Georgetown had made a short um, called I Love the 30s. Uh, I Love the 80s was on VH1 at the time. Yes. Michael Ian Black and all these great people. And we did an I Love the 30s. I think the first episode is about the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. And they're talking about it in a really glib way. Everyone in front of a colored backdrop. And... Um, you know, in that sort of VH1 way, like, the prompts are like, would you say it was the hottest kidnapping <laughs> of the time? Like, you want me to say that, actually? Okay, it was the hottest kidnapping of the time. Right. So we were making those for a thing. There was Channel 101 out here, which was a, uh, I think, weekly uh, festival of shorts. Um, and then in New York, there was Channel 102, same deal, uh, run out of the UCB theater. So we were showing them there, and we ended up selling it as a series to Comedy Central Motherload, and it was, I think we got $8,000, and I quit my job as an assistant <laughs> at Comedy Central. And, and I mean, just the period around there, um, pilots, few of them sold, right, that you were involved with, Dimitri? Around that time? I think, no. Oh, oh, well, shortly after. But, shortly. So each of those years yeah. seems like a full saga. Yeah, right. It really felt slow going. Right. Um, but yes, the next year I had a great writing job, but 2005 to me is so drawn out because it was just, I had no idea what I was doing. Your first like thing that I guess would have been on television where you're integrally involved would have been Demetri Martin's show. Well, first I wrote on a pilot called, uh, Michael Ian Black doesn't understand that Michael Showalter and Michael Ian Black were doing. That was a very good experience. And uh, Dimitri Martin was doing his show with Busboy at Comedy Central. Um, he was doing the pilot at the same time. Once it got picked up for series, uh, Dimitri hired me as a writer. And that was my first full-time. First thing. Yeah. And in the course of doing things like that, you're still doing, you know, being asked now to come to Upright Citizens Brigade's performances that they do, I think, on Sundays, right? And oh, different. they would do these ASCAT improv shows, which yeah. were great. They were on Sunday nights. And even when there had been a Saturday Night Live 
the night before. Sometimes Seth and Amy and Tina and Horatio would show up at the uh, ASCAT show and they would be the improvisers. So they were, you know, they would packed every Sunday night and they would do improv inspired by a monologue. And a couple times they invited me to be the monologist, which was huge. I mean, that was like, I couldn't have been more nervous before something. And that is the dot though that connects to SNL for you, right? I mean, the fact that they knew you from UCB leads to an audition at SNL? Yeah, that that's, uh, looking back, I don't think it, I don't know if I was on their radar much at all, except that Seth said, this guy's really good and you should take a look at him. So you go in for an audition with very little notice, right? Yes, uh, two, 48 hours of notice. 48 hours of notice. How does it work? You were auditioning, thinking you're auditioning, everyone auditions thinking they're going to be a performer, and then they ask some people to be a writer, or do you audition to be a writer? Like, how does that work? Well, I... All I planned for, because I found out on a Tuesday that I was going to audition on a Thursday, was that I wanted to be as funny as possible and have an experience where later I could say, you know, to my grandkids, I once auditioned for Lauren Michaels. So that was the only thing I could, that, that was the only plan I could develop in 48 hours. I was actually out here in LA where I didn't live when they called about auditioning. I was pitching a movie with Nick Kroll and Tracy Morgan. It was the first time I'd ever pitched a feature, and we, were, we had these days where we would uh, go to the Three Arts office, all meet, then we would go out to Sony, we would go out to Paramount, and uh, then we'd go, back, we'd go back to the Three Arts office in between pitches, and I remember Tracy and I once took a nap in the same office on different couches, and this was the day I actually got the call. That day, I, I wake up from a nap, and Tracy is standing, uh, looking at, down at Wilshire through the blinds. And he said, to me or to no one, <laughs> I will not lead a life of quiet desperation. <laughs> I'm here to make noise. Yeah. And then he turned to me, and he said, I want to be like Douglas Fairbanks Jr. <laughs> That's quite a reference. And I was like, yeah. yeah. I said, That's amazing. Yeah. You know? And then you're the one that gets the call. Then I get a call to right. audition. Um, it was not at all, I, I, I did not at all think I was on their radar or, or, or going to be asked for that. You know, I was out there with Nick and people like um, TJ Miller and uh, people who I thought, oh, they're probably going to get brought in this year. Uh, so I put together an audition in 48 hours that was kind of my favorite stand-up bits at that time and really didn't add anything on the fly because I, I thought, I'm just doing my strongest stuff. Right. Because I'm not going to get it. Do you remember what some of that was? Yeah. Um, I did a bit that I was doing on stage at the time about uh, all the different characters you see on Law & Order, <laughs> such as Guy who won't stop stacking crates while the police are interviewing him. <laughs> uh, bartender in a New York City bar who remembers everyone <laughs> that's ever come in. Like, oh, yeah, pink shirt lady. <laughs> nice lady. <laughs> Guy she was with didn't look too happy. And then they always would ask, S why, why do you ask? Like, why do you think they're homicide yeah. detectives? <laughs> so I had kind of act-out-y things in it, but, but it was still just meant to, be, to show them, hey, I'm funny, I know you have Bill Hader, Will Forte, Fred Armisen, Andy Samberg, uh, Seth Meyers, but, you know, and I know I'm not going to get it, Right. I hope you enjoy it. This is August 2008. Yes, August 7th. <laughs> One of the jokes you told also involved one Donald Trump. Oh, I did do that bit. Yeah. Right. Um, that in 2008, this is when um, The Apprentice was 
in its prime, if you can say. <laughs> uh, and the bit was that Donald Trump isn't just a rich man. Donald Trump is what a hobo imagines a rich man to be. <laughs> like, as soon as my number comes in, I'm going to put up tall buildings with my name on them. I'll have fine golden hair. Sort of that, yeah. Right. So you're 25, you get hired. But they, do they say out of the gate, we're hiring you, we'd, we'd like to offer you a job, but you're going to be a writer, not a performer? Yes, Seth was very clear on the phone. And we're hiring you as a writer. And is that exciting, disappointing? No, both? it was the best. It was the best. A big part of what, so you go to work there. And I'm actually looking with hindsight when I say it was the best. Like, it, it, as it went along my time there, I realized how much just how much being a writer there is a learning experience. And there's a lot that you learn that you wouldn't as a cast member. So, I mean, it seems like a big part of what you wound up doing there <laughs> was uh, the opening monologues, which I would think people would want to do, right? Like that's... No. no. Oh, the, the host monologue? Or it was the monologues of the up weekend update. No, no, these were the host monologues. That's what I thought. Which, other than the cold open, is the beginning of the show. Right. No one ever wants to write it. Why? Um, it's, I don't know. I, I think people looked at it as too difficult of a task. It's not uh, as tricky uh, as, as some thought. I don't know if people thought it was kind of like not real writing, just talent relations or something. I'm not sure. People just seem to think of it as this like inconvenient part of the show, and I, I mean the writers, not it, certainly. So, how did that for years become your thing? Because Simon Rich, uh, who I met my first day there, who was twenty three at the time, Simon Rich said, uh, "No one wants to write the monologue, so you and I are going to write a monologue every week." Because guess what? They can't cut the monologue. <laughs> right, 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 right. So we started writing a monologue every week, and that time with a host was very interesting, you know, because it, it's the part they're the most nervous about. And what I didn't realize when I started there is um, there are people coming on the show who are movie stars who have never performed in front of a live audience uh, and have never, let alone done comedy or, or done semi-autobiographical comedy because really we're trying to get them to express some of who they are. And it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting task. Doing that with a new person every week from Charles Barkley to Blake Lively to, uh, you know, let's see. There's so many. Uh, <laughs> Tim McGraw. I'm trying to think right, of a good right. third one, yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm blanking. So I should have just said from Charles Barkley to Blake Lively. Oh, good. Well, okay, so that's a part of what you're doing there. Then you're also involved with Weekend Update quite a bit, right? So why and, and how does it work there that... I mean, I don't think very many writers at SNL have made the jump to being on camera as well, but that began to happen primarily, I think, during Weekend Update. What, oh, when I, was at, when I was on the show? Well, before, well, yeah, where you yeah. would be on... Well, I uh, wrote a lot of characters yeah. who would come on and do features on Weekend Update. Um, topical ones like James Carville, or uh, I once got to write a Bill Clinton for Daryl Hammond. Uh, uh, Rob Klein and I were assigned it late and uh, it was it was at the time in 2008 where Bill Clinton didn't seem to be supporting uh, Barack Obama versus John McCain 
Um, so I got to write one for Daryl, which was like writing for Jimi Hendrix, you know. It was, it was really, like, to put words in Daryl's mouth as Bill Clinton was so exciting. So I did a lot of those, uh, wrote a lot of characters with Bill specifically. Mm -hmm. And I liked doing Weekend Update features because uh, sketches are very contained and it's fun to have all the different elements. And it's, so it's not like this behemoth, but there's still a lot of variables. Whereas a weekend update feature, you have your character. They don't have to be in a big living room. They don't have to have other characters entering. We don't have to worry about any timing. It's just in one right in the camera. And so I may be being from standup as well. I just like the directness of it. And so you get a character that might not work in a sketch, like the Stefan character, right. who sort of worked in a sketch once. Well, that's, so that's, let's take that yeah. case study because it starts as a guy just in a thing with Affleck, right? Ben yeah, Affleck's they were pitching hosting. a movie together. And it was, where did the guy even come from? The character come from? The character of Stefan? Yeah. A bunch of different places. I knew a guy in New York City that was always trying to start these pop-up club nights. So there was a thing going on back then where Mike Bloomberg, who was the mayor, had this silent nights program where they were shutting down a lot of bars and clubs and they wanted the city to be very quiet at night, which really seemed unsafe in a way. Uh, and so there would be these pop-up parties all around downtown, you know, like on a boat in the middle of the Hudson River. And this guy was always talking to me about the parties he was planning and he, what I liked about it was he was always listing things it was gonna have. Like this is gonna have like old men in diapers. This is gonna have. <laughs> You know, babies in Mozart wigs. We're going to have trance music. He was always listing things and saying, um, because it's that thing of, as if it was a com as if these things were common knowledge, right. you know. Like, it's, it's that thing of when you play reggae backwards right. and people are on acid and you're like, oh, okay, that's not a thing I know about. Um, and then, uh, and there was a little bit of inspiration from this short story by Donald Barthelme called The Flight of the Pigeons from the Piazza, where this guy's describing a carnival he's planning. And it's, I, I, looking back at that story, I read it in college, it had a big effect on, on uh, the odd non sequitur references that I have enjoyed throughout that's my great. comedy career. No, that's interesting. And Bill, meanwhile, was going to this coffee place in Chelsea because he still lived in Chelsea at the time. And the barista there had Stefan's mannerisms and seemed very exhausted by life <laughs> and uh, would put his hands over his face like Stefan. And Bill once asked him where he lived and he said, like the lower, lower east side. <laughs> so uh, some of that, uh, a lot of that came from this, this wonderful barista. Okay, so while you're doing SNL or maybe on off-seasons or whatever, those first two Comedy Central specials, uh, John Mulaney, The Top Part, 2009, John Mulaney, New in Town, 2012, those yeah. come out. But, I, and I guess in a way that was, you know, looking back at those, you're sort of introducing this persona, this stage, this screen, or this, this public persona that people assumed you had prior to Baby J, right? Can we just say there's a hint maybe in the second one of something else going on. Like you say, I used to drink, then I drank too much and I had to stop. That surprised a lot of audiences because I don't look like someone who used to do anything. I look like I was just sitting in a room on a chair eating saltines for like 28 years, <laughs> close quote. So that's, but, but I think, you know, for the very most part in those specials, we're seeing you, first of all, in the way that you've always presented yourself in stand-up as kind of, Clean cut, nicely dressed. You don't come out there like a schlub like a lot of people do. You're, um, that was sort of the 
foundation. But then I think the, maybe where most people saw you even more than Comedy Central, even though this wasn't for an extended period of time, in 2014 is where Mulaney, the show, goes on, I think originally ordered by NBC, Yep, goes on Fox, though. Goes on Fox. Just to set the scene. Multicam show, meaning shot in front of a audi- live audience, yep. at a time when the edgier shows were now increasingly single camera, although the popular shows were still multi-camera, all the Chuck Lorre The Chuck Lorre stuff. ones, yeah. Um, very Seinfeld-esque in the sense that you are playing yourself, a comedian living in New York, doing comedy bits. Uh, there are four central characters, uh, one of them a platonic relationship with a, a woman, one of them a neighbor who busts in. Uh, there were quite a... Elliot Gould didn't bust in. Okay. But yes. He we appeared. Would, we would knock on his door often. <laughs> let, me, okay. let me be fair. Um, so anyway, th- this all goes on the air. It definitely did it go definitely on the air. It definitely did, right? Yeah. Didn't stay very long. No. Two episodes before they... Well, they shut down production after two episodes. Right. Because our Halloween episode was about to air, and they shut down production. That was our third episode. Which I imagine, even if it's like, it, it's got a... I, wa- I, I shouldn't assume anything. I want to ask you how that affected you, but also the fact, like, I didn't know this until you... I got a whiff of it from you going on our roundtable, comedy roundtable oh, this yeah. year. There was actually a very different show with a different title that actually was a much more Baby J-like premise before it wound up the way it did on Fox. So can you just explain what you set out to do with that show and then what happened? Okay, what I set out to do in retrospect is so such a weird challenge to take on having never written half-hour television before, having just been at Saturday Night Live and enjoyed some success there. But I had this, I guess, chip on my shoulder or or just bizarre mission to make multicams cool again. And there, I'm going to do a multicam that isn't about dating and it isn't uh, a lot of just sex innuendo and it's just going to be weird. We're going to do the weirdness of single cam comedy and what I do on stage, but we're going to do it in a multicam setting with a live audience because they'll still be good jokes and they'll work in front of a live audience, but we'll break down the format as well. So it won't even be a traditional multicam, but it will be a traditional multicam and it'll be this, but it won't be that. And I had all these rules uh, about what episodes could be. And the first premise of the show at NBC, the show, uh, the pilot was called Mulaney Don't Drink. And because? Because by that point in my life, when I was 30, I'd gotten sober when I was 23. So I had, uh, in college, I had a pretty big uh, cocaine and pill problem, and I drank a lot as well. So I cut all that out uh, at 23. And as you've described me, I, I am kind of a stiff, buttoned-up person and uh, have other sides, obviously. Um, but I, I became this very, you know, very controlled, uh, very disciplined young man. And so the pilot was kind of, I'm living with two roommates. I decide one day I'm going to stop drinking and doing drugs. Um, and how that plays with my friends, which is, in real life, it kind of played poorly. People were like, what? Why are you doing that? Um, And so that was the original pilot. And uh, in it, um, I do work for Martin Short, and Elliot Gould lives across the hall. um, And we had kind of a different uh, roommate 
situation, but uh, it, it, it had a lot of the same folks as what ended up on Fox. But we never saw that side of the darker side didn't make it to Fox because you got notes or you got feedback or what? I was so grateful that uh, Universal was sticking with it. I mean, it had been passed on and in as many pilots are. And it meant a lot to me that they believed in it to try to take it to uh, Kevin Riley at Fox. It meant a lot to me that Bob Greenblatt let us take it to Kevin Riley at Fox. And so... In some meetings, uh, it was said, we should probably take out that sobriety thing. That might bum people out. Yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, definitely. That's one thing I heard from the pilot, et cetera. Now, I'm not blaming anyone who said that. I then made the decision to do that because I think I, I had had this pilot passed on and I knew what an opportunity it was to have it on Fox. And so I took out the North Star, and I didn't realize at that moment I'd taken out the North Star, um, but I did. So while the, you know, it's got to be disappointing, as you say, the show didn't, didn't go long, but in the, it's amazing kind of how quickly you got back up on the horse. And I believe there were, first of all, let's say there were people that wanted you to, at that point, as the next thing, come in and replace Jon Stewart, who's leaving The Daily Show, right? There was a dinner. There was a dinner? Yeah. There okay. was a dinner with uh, the wonderful Kent Alterman, and uh, he asked me if I would be interested in it. And I, uh, I just couldn't imagine. It was right after the um, uh, demise of the sitcom, and it didn't feel right. And I thought, those are enormous shoes to fill, and I didn't have a handle on how I would do a show like that, especially for an audience that had just had one of the greatest hosts of all time for all those years. Well, you did host for the first time, though, around that time. I think maybe probably just a little before the John Stewart possibility was SNL, which, again, you've done a lot in the last few years. But very randomly, because it's not like I have uh, excuses to go there often, but I happen to be at the dress of your first show. It's August 14th, 2014. And the, that was like the Diner Lobster there were a lot of things that have had, right? Had that a was life. later. That was 2018. Or 2018. Okay, yeah. so that's that. Um, right. But that's you were in dress? Yeah. So you were there when the lobster tank couldn't get through the door? There was a whole, I remember a, a struggle. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, was it was a key, real struggle. Yeah. yeah. But it, the, it actually lift. I mean, the sketch probably got 10 times the laughs at dress just because Keenan was playing a lobster in a big tank in a Les Miserables tribute lobster <laughs> diner sketch. Um and we were trying to get the tank through the door, and it was stuck, but he still had to sing, right. um, Who Am I? Which, <laughs> which had been gestating from when you were back as a writer. When right? I was a writer, that was a sketch that Colin Jost and I wrote for a host. Um, and the problem was... The problem was a lot of things. It was a Les Miserables lobster sketch. <laughs> but also, we didn't give the host a very big part. So when I host, I always like to do the things where I can have a small part and Keenan can right. shine as a lobster. Well, so that was diner lobster. Basically, don't eat a don't, lobster you know, from a diner. Diners have these really <laughs> long menus with lots of laminated pages, and there's often like a turkey dinner, and there's often a lobster, and this was what if you actually ordered that lobster. <laughs> and then subsequent times you've been on... As the host, there have been other things you other shouldn't New do in New York, York. warnings. Right. Well, remind me. Um, don't use a bathroom at a bodega. Right. Uh, <laughs> they might let you, but you don't want to. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I remember Rob Klein told me when we were 
pitching ideas for that sketch. He goes, I once used a bathroom at a bodega and there were guys inside playing dominoes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Don't buy... Uh, let's see. Oh, don't eat the sushi at the airport. That was, uh, these really come from primal places for us. (laughs) That's great. Well, okay. So in that aftermath of, of, uh, the show, there's, oh, hello, which goes off Broadway and Broadway. The greatest, Um, the greatest thing to do right after, uh, doing a failed multicam. Why? Uh, there's something about, oh, hello. And doing that with Nick where we are totally free and when we're in those characters, we are wildly reckless. And uh, very, to, to me, it's the most fun I've ever had in comedy. I, it makes me laugh in a way that my other work doesn't. Um, and those characters, they really don't give a fuck. And there's something freeing about playing that. Um, Nick has said that it's who you guys each are <laughs> if you wipe off any desire to be likable. He basically, is that, is that overstating things? Amy Poehler said, this, what's great about this show is it shows who you really are. Nick is a baby and John is an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, so those, there were those things, which by the way, when Ben Brantley is giving you a yeah. rave review, that doesn't, there that, people. <laughs> that had a feel like Saturday Night Live being on Broadway. It was suddenly like, how did we get here? It felt like we were on the moon. And once we were on Broadway, um, we were such punks off Broadway. And when we announced that the 92nd Street Y, we were doing Oh Hello on Broadway with no script and no, no interest from anyone for us to do it. It was such a, it was this grand joke. But then we're on Broadway and we, we are producers and we see the economics of it and we see how hard it is to get a theater. And we were so lucky and we knew we were lucky. And it was one of those times where we knew how fun it was in the moment. Then there's these Netflix specials, which began with John Mulaney, The Comeback Hit 2015, um, the first one, which we recorded in Chicago. Yeah. More personal than your prior stuff, I think. It's fair to say. Somewhat. Somewhat. New in Town was fairly personal yeah. in, in the ways I define personal, okay. I guess. Yeah. 2018, Kid Gorgeous at Radio City. The one, it's filmed from Selling Out Seven Nights at Radio City Music Hall. Footage comes from that. Now, you typically do not get into much political humor. But on this one, I think you had the funniest distillation of Donald Trump that anyone's ever had. Can you just share where, just because I I imagine that there are going to be classes taught on this if they're not already, (laughs) where does a horse set loose in a hospital come from? And if you can just remind people. So the joke was, um, this guy being the president, it's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. No one knows what's going to happen. Um, and don't believe anyone who says they know what's going to happen. It came from a, an idea that I maybe had tried in other jokes, but uh, I, I don't remember offhand. Just it's always funny to listen to experts on the news because they know absolutely nothing. And uh, I mean, right before September 11th, we were all talking about Gary Condit and shark attacks. Like no one knows anything. And so it, watching people try to uh, distill, predict, uh, explain what had happened when that guy was elected, it seemed like, look, we don't, we've never done this before. There's a horse loose in the hospital. Um, and this has never happened, so don't pretend you know how it's going to go. You know, Nixon was a bad doctor, but he was still a doctor. <laughs> this is a horse <laughs> loose in a hospital. 
I loved it. I think it's great. Um, okay. I think the, the, I say in it, everything's going to be okay, but I have no idea what's going to happen next. Right. And neither do you and neither do your parents. Right. <laughs> um, okay. One last project before we get to Baby J. John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, yeah. 2019. This is not really a stand-up special. It's a musical no. comedy children's program hybrid. Um, here's Let me just quote how it was described by others. The New Yorker said it was, quote, not quite a children's show for adults and not quite an adult show for children, close quote. The New York Times noted, quote, this has got to be the only show for children that has references <laughs> to Fran Lebowitz, Federico Fellini, and Ed Koch. <laughs> um, what made you want to work with kids? I, I know that it's something you've thought about even in the context of SNL and stand-up, that there, there's something, I guess, inherently funny about working with kids. Uh, not saying funny about working with them. I... I, I, it was less that I find kids funny and in a, in that like, oh, they're little kids and they say crazy things. I more find them funny for a lot of kids I know are very serious and uh, very matter of fact and very stressed out. And I've always talked to kids. I don't have a good, uh, hey, what do you got? Oh, you got a toy. I don't, I'm not very good at that. I've always been very pl uh, straightforward with kids. Like, what are you doing? What do you have? <laughs> and that I think came from my dad. He didn't, uh, you know. He didn't get on the floor and play with our toys. He'd be like, what grade are you in? Right. I'd go, second grade. And he'd go, okay, how's second grade? <laughs> um, so I like that relationship with kids. I'd seen it modeled as a kid. I thought it was, I knew it was funny and odd. And, um, but Sack Lunch Bunch came out of this project that I was working on in 2018 where, um, so the play Our Town, I'm pretty obsessed with. Yeah. I, I was in it when I was 13. I played Wally Webb, who dies, uh, his appendix bursts. Uh, you don't see him, he's dead. At the third act, you just find out he's dead. You don't even get to see the death. Very sad for the actor. Um, but Our Town is uh, the most licensed play in history, especially by schools, because it has a lot of male and female parts. It's a big cast and it's clean, and there's no swearing, but it's also about death, and it's a weird existential rumination on how boring life seems until you die and you realize it was precious. It is the strangest thing to ask 13 and 14-year-olds to do. It is really such an, because we all were like, this play is so boring, and that's, but we didn't get the uh, once you get to the third act, you look back and realize how precious it was. We just thought, this is boring, and then we're all sitting in a graveyard. This is crazy. Um, and so I found out that Our Town is performed somewhere in the United States every night. So I had this uh, idea that I was going to go see Our Towns at different schools, uh, you know, not every night, but as many as I could. And so I started doing that. I was going to... I still might do something with that. Um, but I found, uh, I just enjoyed the performances of these kids. And I thought, should I do a sketch comedy show with kids and kind of run it like SNL? Uh, Simon Rich and I had once asked Lauren Michaels to hire a child to be in the cast because we were always having Nassim Pedrat or Bobby Moynihan come in as, an, as you know, six foot tall child. So we, uh, we asked him if he would hire an actual kid because it would really fill these spots whenever we have a scene with a family. And he was not interested in that. Um, and so I thought it could be really fun. I, I was also a big fan of movies like The Sandlot or Searching for Bobby Fischer that 
it was kind of all kids and took kids very seriously. So uh, then I was working with my good friend and writer from Saturday Night Live, Merica Sawyer, and we started talking about um, this Carol King album, Really Rosie, which was like a thematic uh, uh, album for kids, but also <clears throat> it's really good music. Uh, we were talking about Free to Be You and Me, and these kind of records that we had as kids, like Harry Nilsson's The Point, and it was you had like pop stars doing these groovy things for children, um, and we thought, let's do one of those, uh, and we did, and nothing has ever come out exactly like I pictured it, except for that. Yeah, it's, I'm, I've never been more satisfied with a professional project. I absolutely loved doing it, and it was so remarkable to work with those kids, and a big theme of it was, um, what's your biggest fear? And we would interview all the kids about that. And it was really, it was very profound. It meant a lot to me. So that came out in 2019. And came 20, out in 2019. 2020, the world goes off a cliff. And as you have subsequently divulged, uh, things were not in a great place for you personally. December 2020 is when you've said you went into rehab to deal with things that had been bubbling up up to that point. Mm -hmm. I'd been I'd gone to a rehab earlier in the fall and then and then this was the second one. Got it. And I guess and that's also when it somebody reported on it and yeah, so it became one. public. It became public knowledge. And I think many people's reaction was wait, that John Mulaney because it was so contrary to what people thought they thought they knew about you, right? That you uh -huh. um so I guess I just wonder you come out of there in May. We don't need to like the the story of your what led to you going there and what led to you uh what your what you experienced there is central to baby j which we'll talk about but i guess what i wonder is the baby j started gestating under a different name i think pretty soon after you got out so you come out in may 2021 i came out in late february late february but by May, you're touring? Or not, by May, or, I'm on stage on at the stage, City I mean. Winery in New York. Okay. The new City Winery on the West Side Highway. Great place. And already using that experience yes. as material. Yeah. So I guess what I wonder is, is that cathartic? Was there any concern that revisiting that material, I don't know, could trigger you? Like, just why, why yeah. was it your reflex to use it immediately as material? I didn't see a way of getting on stage without acknowledging it. I wanted to be on stage again. Was it a good idea? I don't know. Uh, I stayed sober through it. I, it was cathartic. It was nice to uh, just explain a little of what happened. The shows were also because you know, still big COVID policy in New York. They were spaced out and, and, and sort of a small audience spaced out from each other. So it felt pretty intimate and was more workshoppy than anything else. Uh, and why I had such a need to immediately get on stage and do that, I, I'm not totally sure. Uh, if people expressed any worries about me doing it I, I must have brushed them off to the point that I don't remember. <laughs> um, well, but, but it, as you say, it didn't but it work. Staying for you. busy is extremely yeah. important to my health, and I I I'm glad I was out doing it. I had a show every night, and that 
you know, little things add to the reason you stay sober that day. And having a show that night is one of the big ones, you know. And it builds at that moment. No, totally. Uh, builds to February, I believe, of 2023, right? When you go on to the Boston Symphony Hall to record this special Baby J. Alex Timbers, the director who had been involved with Oh Hello. Yeah. Beautiful set. He directed oh, Kid Gorgeous. Kid as Gorgeous well, as well. City, yeah. um, and it's interesting how you guys just approached it. No, normally we see some kind of frivolous montage of the skyline or something where <laughs> somebody's doing it, or you see the comedian like getting dressed backstage or walking out to the stage. We come in, we hear your voice, the screen is black. It then comes to you in, in the middle of your act. And we're just right into you basically pretty close to just you setting up like what's been going on in your life, which, quote, we all went to rehab and we all got divorced and now our reputation is different. No one knows what to think. All the kids like Bo Burnham more because he's currently less problematic. Likeability is a jail. Yeah. Like, well, I'm singing that. Too, singing. So well, I'm not going to try to yeah, do that. Yeah, okay. But, but the point is you like immediately confronted, I guess, the the elephant in the room or whatever. The, this is, if people have heard anything about you since the last one, it was that. Yeah, I mean, I was riding an elephant, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't um, just in the room. So just like the, the, the strategic approach, go right into the material, go right into the deep end of what you've been going through. Um, how, just as a comedian, do you decide, you know, this is the way I'm going to begin to tackle this in a, in a special? Uh, starting with the beginning of the film itself. I didn't want to have the moment I walk on. I didn't want to have the nice cheering that's really fun to get. I didn't want to have the thank you, thank you. And I just, I, uh, there was, it was like, I wanted to reach everyone immediately about <laughs> what I wanted to talk about. I didn't want any bells and whistles. And, and I also thought it would be fun to save the intro or credits to a special and 10 minutes in, which we later do. We have a, you know, this David Byrne, amazing music and our titles. Uh, so there was just some immediacy to it. The, the idea of saving that or, uh, I don't know, trying to hint like, but later we'll talk about that topic and everyone, like I just wanted to immediately hit it because I also had so much material on it that, you know, this is going to be the show. So we're going to start pretty much right off the bat. Does it feel, um, I mean, the material about the intervention is, is gold. Like, the, just to quote back again, as mad as I was when I walked in there, I was like, this is a good lineup. This is really flattering in its own way, close quote. Uh, it was like, or no, it was like a weird the world of alternative comedians over the age of 40. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, then getting into the downside of owing 12 people your life. I actually, uh, I had a joke early in, which is for your consideration, best ensemble yes. <laughs> in an intervention, my intervention. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> um, but I mean, there's, I, I guess people, especially people who have always had a very, you know, kind of, as you, to use your word that you use, likable persona, sort of clean cut, all of that. Did it feel dangerous to be essentially beating up yourself throughout. No, I know that it's, that's, that's reductive. It was more than, but like you are not, there's a point here where you say um, something like, this sounds bad, but this is, 
imagine that this is a joke I'm willing to tell you, or this is a story I'm willing to tell you. Yeah, like it obviously about pawning the Rolex. About pawning yeah, the Rolex, like that I bought the five minutes before. Yeah. Yes, just to get some yeah. cash, um, which I lost. I lost the cash. Uh, you didn't. You, that's I spent a, two grand of it. Yeah, and then I, um, I put three. I put maybe I spent three grand. I put three grand in an Apple shopping bag. Just to, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but just so people know what we're talking about. Of course, you need. You had told your accountant, "Don't give yes. me any cash," because yes. you were recognizing there's an issue. I was using cash to buy drugs, right? Which is the primary way to get drugs is cash. <laughs> now, uh, so I thought if I have no access to cash, I'll stop doing drugs. This was in uh, late 2019, early 2020. I, I do this, so then. For the next six months, I'm finding creative ways to steal my own money from myself. <laughs> uh, rather than just call my accountant and go, I need cash again, I thought, you know, well, I'll let him down if I say that. <laughs> so I bought with my credit card a Rolex uh, on Madison Avenue, and then I sprinted to a, uh, a place called Sell Your Watch uh, <laughs> in the Diamond District, and I, I pawned it about five minutes after buying it for, for half the price. Half the price. Yeah. <laughs> Which you then lost half of. I lost half of, and I ended up, um, so I, I, I thought, I must have thrown that Apple bag away. I was in a 20-floor apartment building in the West Village back then, and I went through almost all of the trash in the basement. Yeah. Uh, started off with like, where would, the, um, where would the bag from my office be from last Wednesday? Okay, and then slowly just going, do you mind uh, <laughs> leaving the gate open and I'll just go through everything? And, uh. Yeah. Didn't find it. So your bottom line is telling all these stories on the show here. I mean, it's it's making it's a pretty vulnerable thing to do, pretty brave thing to do. Um, I want to ask you about the response. You put something out on Netflix, as you've done a bunch of times. It goes out to essentially everywhere but North Korea in a moment, in a you know flip of a switch or whatever. And here, you know, here's just one example of the response: New York Times review. Mulaney's comedy has become spikier, pricklier, sometimes slower, while remaining as funny as ever, like he's, the, like he's a pitcher who learned to mix up speeds. He has performed versions of this material throughout the last two years, and this special arrives on Netflix so meticulously honed that the polish doesn't even show, close quote. Oh, not bad. Not bad. Um, Thanks, but just Jason. Overall, <laughs> yeah, right. Just overall, the, the response to, again, you're putting yourself out there with the special in a way that I don't think you've ever done before. What's the what's the feedback been for for you? Oh, I have now. If I said this in 2018, I am not reading anything. I would have been lying. I was reading everything all the time. Uh, I am actually protecting myself from looking at uh, mainly social media. Uh, I did read some reviews after people told me you got to read this right. review. Right. Uh, and so I'm not totally sure. Uh, I'm home a lot with an 18-month-old and my girlfriend, and uh, I see some friends now and then, but I haven't gotten, I, I wouldn't know. Um, I, I'm tempted to find out, but I, I really, I'm not looking because one insult would crush me. It's more that uh, I got this just the way I wanted it. I'm, I'm so happy with the tone of it. Uh, I'm so happy to show you that... Uh, you know, to, to be the, um, to be the asshole of it, you know, to, to really say like, this isn't just a story of bad things happening to me. Um, this is me not being a very great guy and being a mess. And, 
um, you know, not trying to make an excuse for it and not all, and not trying to wrap it up in a bow where I say, but I'm so grateful now to everyone and I have no problems and no issues <laughs> and it's totally easy to stay sober every single day. And I'm not trying to do that. Uh, I wanted to just do something about recovery that wasn't, and now everything's perfect. Um, and my life isn't an amazing place, but, uh, the, I, maybe that moment in the intervention story, I, I talk about all these friends that confronted me and they totally saved my life, but it still annoys me that they tricked me. <laughs> <laughs> they told me it was a dinner, much like tonight. Right. Uh, Wait till we get outside. Much like tonight, <laughs> I was told, come to this place for a dinner, and then all these people were here. Right. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to include that even after everything, I still, I still can be a bit of a prick sometimes. In our last minute, just three kind of big picture, just what comes to your mind? It seems like with the last few years, we've had Hannah Gadsby with Nanette. We've had Gerard Carmichael with Rathaniel. We've got you with Baby J. I know there are many other examples where it feels like it's less, you know, jokey-jokey and more confessional-type, intimate, personal stories that are at the center of comedy. Is that overanalyzing or do you get the sense from your peers, from your friends, is there some kind of a shift that's happened and why might that be? I think there's always been confessional, perhaps um, vulnerable. I think there's always been work from comedians that is, is, is like that. I mean, Nanette and Rothaniel are so excellent that they did uh, redefine something. Um, but... I don't know if it's a new trend. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at Richard Pryor on the Sunset Strip, if you look at a lot of Richard Pryor, if you look at um, uh, Gene Shepard going back, like, to the 50s, you know, there, there's been a lot of uh, melancholy in comedy as well. I, did, I will say I wanted to make this as laugh-heavy as possible. Uh, I didn't want to tell that story of, you know, and there I was, selling a watch I had just bought. And I felt so small. I didn't want to have yeah, that yeah. tone. You know, I, I really wanted to present these stories almost as if I was proud of them. Yeah. Uh, because at that moment, I was. Oh, right. I got six grand <laughs> right. in cash right. by only spending 12 grand. <laughs> I'll put it in this Apple bag. Don't worry about that. Right. So that's... Uh, that is one of two, one of three. Number two, very honored to have here uh, in our audience a past guest of the podcast, a friend of ours, uh, the head of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, President Janet Yang. Janet, I think, might perhaps also be interested in the answer to this question. Not speaking for her, just curious. If asked, would you ever host the Academy Awards? <laughs> oh. I, I have no reason to say, uh, sure. Duly noted, duly noted. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is it, would it be fun? Is that the kind of thing? Really that, fun. Yeah. It's hosting the Academy Awards. Johnny Carson did that. Right. Kimmel's awesome. so great, though. I couldn't imagine, you know, I'd, 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 I would, I'd probably rather watch Jimmy do it than do it. But, man, imagine that. Me, <laughs> hosting the Academy Awards. I love it. Me in a tux, right out there. <laughs> Last question. Anything left specifically on the bucket list, or if you could just, 
you know, keep it going the way it's going, would you be content? Or are there specific things that, you know, you really um, feel you need to do? Oh, professionally. Oh, there's lots of things I want to do. Oh, I, I've always, it, I've done a lot of work as a stand-up comedian in the past few years. I, but I see myself, uh, you know, being a writer for documentary now is equally important to me. And I, I like trying a lot of different things. I want to do, I want to write more theater. Uh, I want to write, uh, I, I, you know, I want to write films that are like those that I grew up on, you know, uh, I've mentioned searching for Bobby Fischer. I I don't mean to just pick that movie. I guess I rewatched it recently (laughs) and I really liked it. Um, I, I, I really love, I loved bringing, um, a Broadway show to Netflix. We did Oh Hello on Netflix and I, um, am really interested in, you know, uh, producing like live theater, live music, live comedy for, uh, streaming. I, um, yeah. I might host the Academy Awards that after this. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, there's, uh, I've never had a plan. Uh, Lauren Michaels told me to never plan more than three months in advance. And I've stuck to that. Uh, and it, and it, it fits with my personality. I don't, I don't like five-year plans. Right. So uh, looking back on everything, it was fun to go through it. It's just sort of happened. Um, I never had a just one goal. And so it's made, it's made this time and all the lucky things I've been able to do feel really eclectic and I, I never get bored. I can't thank you enough for being number 500. I'm, I really appreciate I'm it. So, thank you so I'm much. I'm so flattered that you asked me to do this, by the way. Thank you. Incredibly flattered. Really thank appreciate you. it. Thanks, <laughs> thank everybody. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app and to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.